Chapter 11 of Historical Mysteries This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Historical Mysteries by Andrew Lang Chapter 11 The Chevalier Dion The Mystery of the Chevalier Dion 1728-1810 the question of his sex, on which so many thousand pounds were betted, is no mystery at all. The Chevalier was a man, and a man of extraordinary courage, audacity, resource, physical activity, industry, and wit. The real mystery is the problem why, at a mature age, the forty-two, did Dayan take upon him and endure for forty years the travesty of feminine array? which could only serve him as a source of notoriety, in short, as an advertisement? The answer, probably, is that, having early seized opportunity by the forelock, and having been obliged, after an extraordinary struggle, to leave his hold, he was obliged to clutch at some mode of keeping himself perpetually in the public eye, hence, probably, his persistent assumption of feminine costume. If he could be distinguished in no other way, he could shine as a mystery. There was even lucre in the pose. Charles Dion was born on October 7, 1728, near Tonnerre. His family was of chétive noblesse, but well protected, and provided for by patent places. He was highly educated, took the degree of Doctor of Law, and wrote with acceptance on finance and literature. His was a studious youth, for he was as indifferent to female beauty as was Frederick the Great, and his chief amusements were fencing, of which art he was a perfect master, and society, in which his wit and gaiety made the girlish-looking lad equally welcome to men and women. All were fond of Le Petit Dion, so audacious, so ambitious, and so amusing. The Prince de Conti was his chief early patron, and it was originally in support of Conti's ambition to be king of Poland that Louis XV began his incredibly foolish secret, a system of foreign policy conducted by hidden agents behind the backs of his responsible ministers at Versailles. And in the courts of Europe, the results naturally tend to recall a Gilbert and Sullivan comic opera of diplomacy. We find magnificent ambassadors, gravely trying to carry out the royal orders, and thwarted by the king's secret agents. The king seems to have been too lazy to face his ministers, and compel them to take his own line, while he was energetic enough to work like Tiberius, or Philip II of Spain, at his secret Penelope's task of undoing by night the warp and woof which his ministers wove by day. In these mysterious labours of his, the Comte de Broglie, later a firm friend of Dion was, with Tercier, one of his main assistants. The king thus enjoyed all the pleasures and excitements of a conspirator in his own kingdom, dealing in ciphered dispatches, with the usual cant names, carried in the false bottoms of snuff-boxes, precisely as if he had been a Jacobite plotter. It was entertaining, but it was not diplomacy, and, sooner or later, Louis was certain to be blackmailed, by some underling in his service. That underling was to be Dayan. 
1755, Louis wished to renew relations, long interrupted, with Elizabeth, Empress of Russia, the lady whom Prince Charlie wanted to marry, and from whose offered hand the brave James Keith fled as fast as horses could carry him. Elizabeth, in 1755, was an ally of England, but was known to be French in her personal sympathies, though she was difficult of access. As a messenger, Louis chose a Scot, described by Captain Buchan Telfer as a Mackenzie, a Jesuit, calling himself the Chevalier Douglas, and a Jacobite exile. He is not to be found in the Dictionary of National Biography. A Sir James and a Sir John Douglas, if both were not the same man, were employed as political agents between the English and Scottish Jacobites in 1746 and in 1749, between the Prince and the Landgrave of Hesse. Whatever the true name of the Douglas of Louis XV, I suspect that he was one or the other of these dim Jacobites of the Douglas clan. In June 1755, this Chevalier Douglas was sent by Louis to deal with Elizabeth. He was certainly understood by Louis to be a real Douglas, a fugitive Jacobite, and he was to use in ciphered dispatches precisely the same silly sort of veiled language about the fur trade as Prince Charles's envoys had just been using about the timber trade with Sweden. Douglas set forth, disguised as an intellectual British tourist, in the summer of 1755, and it is Captain Buchan Telford's view that Dayon joined him, also as a political agent, in female apparel on the road, and that, while Douglas failed and left Russia by October 1755, Dayon remained at St. Petersburg, attired as a girl, Douglas's niece, and acting as the electrice of the Empress, whom he converted to the French alliance. This is the traditional theory, but is almost certainly erroneous. Sometimes, in his vast MSS, Dayan declares that he went to Russia disguised in 1755, but he represents himself as then aged 20, whereas he was really 27, and this he does in 1773, before he made up his mind to pose for life as a woman. He had a running claim against the French government for the expenses of his first journey to Russia. This voyage, in 1776, he dates in 1755, but in 1763, in an official letter, he dates his journey to Russia, of which the expenses were not repaid, in 1756. That is the true chronology. Nobody denies that he did visit Russia in 1756, attired as a male diplomatist, but few now believe that in 1755 he accompanied Douglas as that gentleman's pleasing young niece. Mademoiselles Homburg and Jocelyne, in their recent work, declared that among Dion's papers, which lay for a century in the back shop of the London bookseller, they find letters from him from June 1756, written by Tercier, who managed the secret of Louis XV. There are no known proofs of Dion's earlier presence in Russia, and in petticoats in 1755. He did talk later of a private letter of Louis XV, of October 4, 1763, in which the king wrote that he had served him usefully in the guise of a female, and must now resume it, and that letter is published. But all the evidence, to which we shall return, tends to prove that this paper is an ingenious, deceptive interpolation. If the king did write it, then he was deceiving the manager of his secret police, Tercier, for, in the note, he bids Dion remain in England, 
Well, he was at the same time telling Tercier that he was uneasy as to what Dion might do in France when he obeyed his public orders to return. If, then, the royal letter of October 4, 1763, testifying to Dion's feminine disguise in Russia, be genuine, Louis XV had three strings to his bow. He had his public orders to ministers, he had his private conspiracy worked through Tercier, and he had his secret intrigue with Dion, of which Tercier was allowed to know nothing. This hypothesis is difficult, if not impossible, and the result is that Dion was not current in Russia as Douglas's pretty French niece and as reader to the Empress Elizabeth in 1755. In 1756, in his own character as a man and a secretary, he did work under Douglas. Then on his second visit, public and successful, to gain Russia to the French alliance. For, dismissed in October 1755, Douglas came back and publicly represented France at the Russian court in July 1756. This was, to the highest degree of probability, Dion's first entrance into diplomacy, and he triumphed in his mission. He certainly made the acquaintance of Princess Dashkov, and she, as certainly, in 1769-1771, when on a visit to England, gave out that Dion was received by Elizabeth in a manner more appropriate to a woman than a man. It is not easy to ascertain precisely what the tattle of the princess really amounted to, but Dion represents it so as to corroborate his tale about his residence at Elizabeth's court as lectrice in 1755. The evidence is of no value, being a biased third-hand report of the Russian lady's gossip. There is a mezzotint, published in 1788, from what professes to be a copy by Angelica Kaufman of a portrait of Dion in female costume at the age of 25, if these attributions are correct, Dion was masquerading as a girl three years before he went to Russia, and, if the portrait is exact, was wearing the Order of St. Louis ten years before it was conferred on him. The evidence as to this copy of an alleged portrait of Dion is full of confusions and anachronisms, and does not even prove that he thus travestied his sex in early life. In Russia, when he joined Douglas there in the summer of 1756, Dion was a busy secretary of legation. In April 1757, he went back to Versailles, bearing rich diplomatic sheaves with him, and one of those huge presents of money in gold to Voltaire, which no longer come in the way of men of letters. While he was at Vienna, on his way back to St. Petersburg, tidings came of the Battle of Prague. Dion hurried to Versailles with the news, and, though he broke his leg in a carriage accident, he beat the messenger whom Count Taunitz officially dispatched, by thirty-six hours. This unladylike proof of energy and endurance procured for Dion a gold snuff-box. Elizabeth only gave him a trumpery snuff-box in tortoiseshell, with the king's miniature, a good deal of money, and a commission in the dragoons, for the little man's heart was really set on a military, rather than a diplomatic career. However, as diplomat, he ferreted out an important secret of Russian internal treachery, and rejected a bribe of a diamond of great value. The money's worth of the diamond was to be paid to him by his own government, but he no more got that than he got the 10,000 livres for his travelling expenses. Thus early was he accommodated with a grievance, and because Dion had not the wisdom to see that a man with grievances is a ruined man, he overthrew, later, a promising career in the violence of his attempts to obtain redress. This was Dion's bane, and the cause of the ruinous eccentricities for which he is remembered. In 1759, he ably seconded the egregious Louis XV, 
in upsetting the policy which de Choiseul was carrying on by the king's orders. De Choiseul's duty was to make the empress mediate for peace in the Seven Years' War. The duty of Deon was to secure the failure of de Choiseul. Without the knowledge of the French ambassador, the Marquis de la Hospital, of whom he was the secretary, possessed of this pretty secret, Deon was a man whom Louis could not safely offend and snub, and Deon must therefore have thought that there could scarcely be a limit to his success in life. But he disliked Russia, and left it for good in August 1760. He received a life pension of 2,000 livres, and was appointed aide-de-camp to the Maréchal de Broglie, commanding on the Upper Rhine. He distinguished himself in August 1761 by a very gallant piece of service in which, he says, truly or not, he incurred the ill-will of the Comte de Gershie. The pair were destined to ruin each other a few years later. Théon also declares that he led a force which dislodged the Highland mountaineers in a gorge of the mountain at Einbeck. I know not what Highland regiment is intended, but Dion's orders bear that he was to withdraw troops opposed to the Highlanders, and a certificate in his favour from the Duke and the Comte de Broglie does not allude to the circumstances that, instead of retreating before the plagues, he drove them back to the English camp. It may therefore be surmised that, though Dion often distinguished himself and was wounded in the thigh at Ultrop, his claim of victory over a Highland regiment is an interpolation. De Broglie writes, We purpose retreating. I send Monsieur Dion to withdraw the Swiss and Grenadiers of Champagne, who are holding in check the Scottish Highlanders lining the wood on the crest of the mountain, whence they have caused us much annoyance. The English outposts were driven in, but after that was done, the French advance was checked by the plague gale. Dion did not kill the mountaineer, as their tinsel kills the game. Not a word is said about his triumph. Even in the certificate of the two de Broglies, which Dion published in 1764. In 1762, France and England, weary of war, began the preliminaries of peace, and Dion was attached as secretary of legation to the French negotiator in London, the Duc de Nivernais, who was on terms so intimate with Madame de Pompadour that she addressed him in writing as Petit Epoux. In the language of the affections as employed by the black natives of Australia, this would have meant that de Nevenet was the recognised rival of Louis XV in the favour of the lady. But the inference must not be carried to that length. There are different versions of a trick which Dion, as secretary, played on Mr. Robert Wood, author of an interesting work on Homer, and with the Jacobite savant, Jemmy Dawkins, the explorer of Palmyra, the story as given by Nivernet is the most intelligible account. Mr. Wood, as Under-Secretary of State, brought to Nivernet and read to him a diplomatic document, but gave him no copy. Theon, however, opened Wood's portfolio while he dined with Nivernet, and had the paper transcribed. To this Theon himself adds that he had given Wood more than his whack during dinner of a heavy wine grown in the vineyards of his native Tonnerre. In short, the little man was so serviceable that, in the autumn of 1762, de Nevenet proposed to leave him in England as interim minister after the Duc's own return to France. Little Deon is very active, very discreet, never curious or officious, neither distrustful nor a cause of distrust in others. De Nevenet was so pleased with him, and so anxious for his promotion, that he induced the British ministers, contrary to all precedent, to send Deon instead of a British subject, 
to Paris with the treaty for ratification. He then received from Louis XV the order of St. Louis, and, as Delevenet was weary of England, where he had an eternal cold, and resigned, Dayan was made minister plenipotentiary in London till the arrival of the new ambassador, de Gershi. Now de Gershi, if we believe Dayan, had shown the better part of valour in a dangerous military task, the removal of ammunition under fire, whereas Dayan had certainly conducted the operation with courage and success. The two men were thus on terms of jealousy, if the story is true, while de Nibonnet did not conceal from Dayan that he was to be the brain of the embassy, and that de Gershi was only a dull figurehead. Dayan possessed letters of de Broglie and de Brasland, in which de Gershi was spoken of with pity and contempt. In short, his dispatch boxes were magazines of dangerous diplomatic combustibles. He also succeeded in irritating de Brasland, the French minister, before returning to his new post in London for Dayan was a partisan of the two de Broglies, now in the disgrace of Madame de Pompadour and of Louis XV, though the Comte de Broglie, disgraced as he was, still managed the secret police of the French king. Dayan's position was thus full of traps. He was at odds with the future ambassador, de Gershi, and with the minister, de Praslin, and would not have been promoted at all had it been known to the minister that he was in correspondence with and was taking orders from the disgraced Comte de Broglie. But, by the fatuous system of the king, Dayon, in fact, was doing nothing else. De Broglie, exiled from court, was Dayon's real master. He did not serve de Gershi or de Proslan, and Madame de Pompadour, who was not in the secret of her royal lover. The king's secret now, 1763, included a scheme for the invasion of England, which Dayon and a military agent were to organise, at the very moment when peace had been concluded. There is fairly good evidence that Prince Charles visited London in this year, no doubt with an eye to mischief. In short, the new minister plenipotentiary to St. James's, unknown to the French government and to the future ambassador, de Gershi, was to manage a scheme for the ruin of the country to which he was accredited. If ever this came out, the result would be, if not war with England, at least war between Louis XV, his minister, and Madame de Pompadour, a result which frightened Louis XV more than any other disaster. The importance of his position now turned Dayan's head, in the opinion of Horace Walpole, who, of course, had not a guess at the true nature of the situation. Dayan, in London, entertained French visitors of eminence and the best English society, it appears, with the splendour of a full-blown ambassador and at whose expense? Certainly not at his own, and neither the late ambassador, de Nivernet, nor the coming ambassador, de Gershi, a man far from wealthy, had the faintest desire to pay the bills. Angry and tactless letters, therefore, passed between Dayon in London and de Gershi, de Nivernet, and de Praslan in Paris. De Gershi was dull and clumsy. Dayon used him as the whetstone of his wit, with a reckless abandonment which proves that he was as they say, rather above himself, like Napoleon before the march to Moscow. London, in short, was the Moscow of little Dayon. When de Gershi arrived, and Dayon was reduced to secretarissa, and, indeed, was ordered to return to France, and not to show himself at court, he lost all self-control. The recall came from the minister, de Praslin, but Dayon, as we know, though de Praslin did not, 
was secretly representing the king himself. He declares that, at this juncture, October 11, 1763, Louis XV sent him the extraordinary private autograph letter, speaking of his previous services in female attire, and bidding him remain with his papers in England, disguised as a woman. The improbability of this action by the king has already been exposed, but when we consider the predicament of Louis, obliged to recall Dion publicly, while all his ruinous secrets remained in the hands of that disgraced and infuriated little man, it seems not quite impossible that he may have committed the folly of writing this letter, for the public recall says nothing about the secret papers of which Dion had quantities. What was to become of them if he returned to France in disgrace? If they reached the hands of de Gershi, they meant an explosion between Louis XV and his mistress and his ministers. To parry the danger then, according to Dayon, Louis privately bade him flee disguised with his cargo of papers and hide in female costume. If Louis really did this, and Dayon told the story to the father of Madame de Campon, he had three strings to his bow, as we have shown, and one string was concealed a secret within a secret, even from Tercier. Yet what folly was so great as to be beyond the capacity of Louis? Meanwhile, Dayon simply refused to obey the king's public orders and denied their authenticity. They were only signed with a griff or stamp, not by the king's pen and hand. He would not leave London. He fought de Gershi with every kind of arm, accused him of suborning an assassin, published private letters and his own versions of the affair, fled from the charge of libel, could not be extradited by virtue of what Mademoiselle Homburg and Jusselin call the law of home rule, fortified his house and went armed. Probably there really were designs to kidnap him, just as a regular plot was laid for the kidnapping of de la Motte at Newcastle after the affair of the diamond necklace. In 1752, a Marquis de Frateau was collared by a sham martial court officer, put on board a boat at Gravesend, and carried to the Bastille. Dayan, under the charge of libel, lived a fugitive and cloistered existence till the man who, he says, was to have assassinated him, de Vergy, sought his alliance, and accused de Gershi of having suborned him to murder the little daredevil. A grand jury brought in a true bill against the French ambassador, and the ambassador's butler, accused of having drugged Dayon, fled. But the English government, by aid of what the Duc de Broglie calls a noli prosique, noli being usual, tided over a difficulty of the gravest kind. The granting of noli prosique is denied. The ambassador was mobbed and took leave of absence, and Louis XV, through de Broglie, offered to Dayon terms humiliating to a king. The Chevalier finally gave up the warrant for his secret mission in exchange for a pension of 12,000 livres, but he retained all other secret correspondence and plans of invasion. As for de Gershé, he resigned, 1767, and presently died of sheer annoyance, while his enemy, the Chevalier, stayed in England as London correspondent of Louis XV. He reported, in 1766, that Lord Bute was a Jacobite, and de Broglie actually took seriously the chance of restoring, by Butte's aid, Charles III, who had just succeeded by the death of the old Chevalier to a kingdom not of this world. The death of Louis XV in 1774 brought the folly of the secret policy to an end, but in the same year 
Rumours about Guyana's dubious sex appeared in the English newspapers on the occasion of his book, Les Glaceurs de Chevalier d'Or, published at Amsterdam. Bets on his sex were made, and Dion beat some bookmakers with his stick. But he persuaded Drouet, an envoy from France, that the current stories were true, and this can only be explained, if explained at all, by his perception of the fact that, his secret employment being gone, he felt the need of an advertisement. Overtures for the return of the secret papers were again made to Dion, but he insisted on the restoration of his diplomatic rank and on receiving 14,000 liras on account of expenses. He had aimed too high, however, and was glad to come to a compromise with the famous Beaumarchais. The extraordinary bargain was struck that Dayon, for a consideration, should yield the secret papers and, to avoid a duel with the son of de Gershi and a consequent scandal, should pretend to be a woman and wear the dress of that sex. In his new capacity, he might return to France, and wear the cross of the Order of St. Louis. Beaumarchais was as thoroughly taken in as any dupe in his own comedies. In Dion he saw a blushing spinster, a kind of Jean d'Arc of the 18th century, pining for the weapons and uniform of the martial sex, but yielding her secret and forsaking her arms in the interest of her king. On the other side, the blushless captain of dragoons listened with downcast eyes to the sentimental compliments of Beaumarchais, and suffered himself, without a smile, to be compared to the maid of Orleans, says the Duc de Broglie. Our manners are obviously softened, wrote Voltaire. Dion is a pucelle d'Orleans who has not been burned. To de Broglie, Dion described himself as the most unfortunate of unfortunate females. Dion returned to France, where he found himself but a nine days' wonder. It was observed that this pucelle was obviously shaved that in the matter of muscular development she was a little Hercules, that she ran upstairs taking four steps at a stride, that her hair, like that of Jean d'Arc, was coupé en rond, of a military shortness, and that she wore the shoes of men with low heels while she spoke like a grenadier. At first Dion had all the social advertisement which was now his one desire, but he became a nuisance and, by his quarrels with Beaumarchais, a scandal. In drawing-room plays he acted his English adventures with the great playwriter, whose part was highly ridiculous. Now Dayon pretended to desire to take the veil as a nun. Now to join the troops being sent to America, he was consigned to retreat in the castle of Dijon, 1779. He had become a weariness to official mankind. He withdrew, 1781-85 to join the privacy at Tonnerre, and then returned to London in the semblance of a bediamonded old dame, who, after dinner, did not depart with the ladies. He took part in fencing matches with great success, and in 1791 his library was sold at Christie's, with his swords and jewels. The catalogue bears the motto from Giovannin, Caldecus rerum, si virginis octio fiat, no doubt selected by the learned little man. The snuff-box of the Empress Elizabeth, a gift to the diplomatist of 1756, fetched two pounds, thirteen shillings and sixpence. The poor old boy was badly hurt at a fencing match in his sixty-eighth year, and henceforth lived retired from arms in the house of a Mrs. Cole, an object of charity. He might have risen to the highest places if discretion had been among his gifts, 
and his career proves the quantilo sapienza of the French government before the revolution. In no other time or country could the king's secret have run a course far more incredible than even the story of Chevalier Dion. End of chapter 11